Welcome to Negotiating Brexit, the Views from the Member States podcast. This is a series for anyone interested in Brexit and the UK's future relations with its European neighbours. We look at viewpoints that are not always well known in the UK. I'm Hussein Kassim, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and a Changing Europe. And I'm Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate at UEA. Today we're looking at the Netherlands and Brexit. We're delighted to welcome our guests Catherine de Vries and Rem Kotteveg. Catherine de Vries is Professor of Political Science at Bocconi University, where she is also Dean, one of the most influential and distinguished political scientists of her generation. She researches political behaviour, political economy and EU politics. Catherine was based in the UK for 10 years at the University of Oxford, then the University of Essex, before moving to the Free University of Amsterdam and then Bocconi. As well as publishing in the very top journals in her field, she has written two important books, the prize-winning Euroscepticism and the Future of European Integration, and with the LSE's Sarah Hobolt, Political Entrepreneurs, The Rise of Challenger Parties in Europe. She writes regularly in the Dutch press and has followed Brexit from the perspectives of the UK and continental Europe. Rem Korteberg is Senior Research Fellow at Klingeldal, the Netherlands Institute of International Relations. He holds a PhD in international relations from Leiden University and a master's in the history of international relations from Utrecht University. A former Fulbright scholar at the John Hopkins SAIS Center for Transatlantic Relations in Washington, D.C., Rem previously held positions at the Center for European Reform in London, the Hague Center for Strategic Studies, and as a strategic policy advisor at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Netherlands. He works on Europe's strategic role in the world with a specific focus on the intersection between foreign policy, trade, and security issues. He is a regular contributor to the international and national media and has followed Brexit closely. So the UK imagines that national capitals have been as preoccupied by Brexit as the UK has. Uh, Would you say that this has been an important issue in the Netherlands? I mean, I'm thinking in terms of press coverage, leading politicians, political parties businesses, NGOs? From the moment that the result of the referendum came in, in June 2016, the the Dutch government has been um, very much concerned with the impact of Brexit. As deadlines came and went, you could argue that general public attention span on the actual material nature of the negotiations started to um, slip you could argue that a number of companies who were obviously exposed or concerned about Brexit started to believe, well, we've seen deadlines come and go before. And I think that's particularly been the case ever since the withdrawal agreement was was signed. And of course, the COVID pandemic intervened. Businesses were focused on COVID, on, on dealing with the pandemic, rather than thinking about oh my gosh, at the end of 2020, there is going to be a new, uh, a new relationship with the United Kingdom in, in trade terms. Now, that's on the formal side. On the informal side, Brexit has a tremendous entertainment factor for the Dutch. And you can really make the case that Brexit competes with the new season of the crown when it comes to the amount of attention being spent by talk shows or by the more entertainment end of 
journalism and media. And there's this fascination, for instance, with John Burko when he was still Speaker of the House or the antics in the UK Parliament as the meaningful votes came and went and passed and failed. And But I don't know, Catherine, how do you, how do you see yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you're very right that, that I think that, I think both in political um, interests, because you have the rapporteurs in parliament, but many other parliamentarians don't seem very interested. They seem way more interested in the recovery fund when it came to the EU. And, you know, that has, of course, much more bearing on, on, on the Netherlands and the future, right, of the euro and also discussions about the future of the EMU and the future of the euro and what's going to happen. So that's, I think, on the EU side, you know, the Netherlands is still going to be part of the EU. So that's much more the focus than, let's say, uh, the parting member states. But on the other hand, I think Adam is very right that the, you know, and that, that maybe is also a little, a little sad about the situation that it became the kind of political soap opera that was very, very popular. And that was indeed John Burko. You know, there were, I remember also on one particular uh, political podcast that um, Rob Ford uh, from the University of Manchester was always invited to talk about the latest development. I think there, he normally does like only one podcast with someone. I think they did like 10, you know, like about all the different aspects concerning Brexit. But that was really not about Brexit, right? That was about, indeed, what I said about the withdrawal agreement and, 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 and that association. Also, then I think on the kind of more, yeah, cartoonesque side is that then the Dutch government decided to have, yeah, I know it's a fluffy animal, which is called Brexit <laughs> in blue. He's kind of a bit silly, you know, he, jump, he, he kind of like uh, drops things and things like that. So that, that I think was also, you know, I, I don't know if, how they chose that or what the consideration was, but it was very much, it came across in some of those little videos. It was basically in order for what the said to, to reach smaller entrepreneurs, et cetera, and for everyone to prepare. It was a little bit kind of the kind of bull or elephant in a, in a, in a, in a China shop. That's how it basically, and I think that kind of is how certain people viewed it in the sense that there was a lot of sympathy with, with the UK's decision to leave, but then the, the, then the actual tension was much more on the soap opera. But I, 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 I do think that it will be, you know, will be interesting to see 1st of January 2020, uh, 2021, sorry, uh, what's really going to happen. So I, I think it's a combination of being first kind of shocked, like many, many continental Europeans, then really focusing, oh, we need to do something. If you go back to late 2018, there was a sense of Brexit fatigue as well coming from the Dutch government. You had Dutch ministers for international trade saying, look, we need to get this over with. Let's let's move on already. Thank you very much, both of you, for the very comprehensive answer. Good comprehensive start to the discussion there and clear sequence of what happened over the last four years, uh, the ups and downs in, in the Netherlands. I'll move on uh, to the second question. So the Netherlands and the UK have much in common as EU member states, economically, liberal traditions, Atlanticists, and a certain skepticism uh, of a federalist vision of the EU. Um, how does the Netherlands view the UK's departure? I mean, it's, that, that, that's a great question. So I, I think there's also a lot entailed in that question. So I think if we start back to like, to like 2016, so the immediate aftermath, we also have to remember, of course, we saw the pressure on the pound. We saw a lot of bad economic predictions. And you really saw that in public opinion, if we think that that's a good indicator of, you know, what the Dutch public thinks, that you saw really an increase in support for, for membership. So contrary to maybe what some people and, uh, and some writings were in the, United, in the United Kingdom, I was still living 
in Oxford time, you know, it was, oh, now it's going to be unleashed, right? We're going to see contagion and, you know, the Netherlands or Sweden or Denmark, you know, countries that are perceived as, as, as kind of closer to some of these traditions that you suggest are going to go next. And that was clearly not the case. You also saw that, for example, um, political entrepreneurs that are traditionally your skeptic, think Geert Wilders, kind of toned down some of the language. So they said, we don't want to leave, but we want to change the EU. Uh, they get, went a bit back and forth, to be fair, on that. So they sometimes use that strategically. So you saw that. So that was the one end. You know, so, okay, I think many people have the idea that the, that, the, that the Dutch economy is a small, open economy and serves well being in the EU. But at the same time, there's a lot of critique about the EU that Dutch people, but also Dutch politicians, of course, share with the United Kingdom. So I think the second element was, it's almost a bit of like, I mean, maybe it's the stages of mourning, I don't know, right? But in, in a sense of, of at a certain point, oh, I've lost this. And that became very vivid to me in the discussions about the Dutch position in the recovery fund. There's a strong kind of affiliation with the United Kingdom. I grew up with like absolutely fabulous, like that, that was kind of what I watched, right? And I think a lot of people watch, you know, Black Ether, you know, a lot of people watch the BBC. A lot of us, I mean, Rem and I have lived in the United Kingdom. A lot of people spent a considerable stint of their working time in the United Kingdom. So it's seen as a country that, that we share a lot with. Um, but maybe what we didn't initially share, I guess, was that Euroscepticism. I do have to say it's mainstreamed way more in the Netherlands than, than, than let's say, uh, when I left the UK. So when I came back, I also have written something in the Dutch newspaper. Oh, this feels a little bit more like the Dutch, uh, sorry, like, 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 uh, like the UK discussion. Uh, critical, but I think that it's it's a little bit of a sense of, I mean, maybe maybe Rem sees this differently, but I, I I don't have the feeling that at this moment in time there is a lot of ideas like we should follow the United Kingdom, and that had to do with the fact of you know what I said, the initial also difficulties that we talked about of the withdrawal agreement, the the Irish border, a lot of things about the cost of leaving became more manifest. And the Dutch are always good about cost and benefit. And I think some of the costs were more, more deliberate. Now that said, you know, having an emeritus member state, and that's been some of the work that I've done, having an emeritus member state on your shore, I'm, I, I'm just talking about in the current situation. I don't know how that's going to be in 10 years. If Dutch people have the idea that Britain fared better outside the EU, that might be entirely different story, right? And, uh, and so there is kind of, kind of really some critique about the EU, but also I think a, a sense of like leaving is kind of a more extreme. Can we, can we, can we reform parts of the EU? Can we develop you know, a lot of discussion that has started in the Netherlands about more differentiated integration, uh, also ideas of opt-outs, which was more maybe associated with, uh, with Denmark or with the UK. So I think there has been an effect about the relationship between Dutch people and the EU, that a sense of like, maybe we need to, you know, we need to articulate some of our concerns and, and reform that. There's also been committees developed. I know Rem and also uh, Klingel have done a lot of uh, kind of work in this area. But I think initially what you do say when you ask a Dutch person now, do you want to leave the EU in hypothetical referendum? You know, polls are what they are, right? So we have to have a take it with a grain of salt. But there is a large majority of Dutch people that want to remain uh, uh, in the EU and actually see the British example as, oh, well, that's so much uncertainty and so much political and economic cost that, you know, that's actually not something that we want to go. But as I said, that's that's the moment now. I'm not necessarily making predictions about 10 years from now. Generally follow... Um what Catherine said, the what I'd add is that it's worth remembering that the Netherlands was always one of the biggest fans of UK membership of the European community. So back in the 1960s and 70s, the Netherlands was really one of the advocates of bringing the Brits on board. 
And the reason for doing so was not just economically or culturally, but also very much geopolitically. The fact that the Netherlands always felt a little bit squeezed between France and Germany, this sense that it required a balance that it itself wasn't large enough to, to, to balance against some of the initiatives coming out of um, a, a, uh, a decision making between uh, between Bonn and, and Paris, later Berlin and Paris, that it was necessary to have uh, a strong third voice, which on economic financial affairs was much more aligned with, say, Dutch traditions. Um, and also uh, that it wanted to position itself geopolitically inside that triangle between London, Berlin, and Paris. The Netherlands simply felt very comfortable in a European Union where it was effectively in the heart of that decision-making triangle. I mean, look at the map of Europe and draw a line between the three major countries, the UK, Germany, and France, and, and which country sits right bang in the middle. We always thought that we have better relations with each of them individually than they have with each other, and that helped Dutch uh, politics or Dutch diplomacy. Now, after Brexit, there is this sense of concern about what it means for the Dutch position inside the EU. And that's why I think Mark Rutte was very clear in his assessment right after the referendum that he fundamentally dislikes Brexit, also because it exposes the Netherlands to a number of difficult questions. Again, look at the map. Um, the Netherlands used to be at the heart of the EU. After Brexit, demographically and economically, the center of gravity of the EU has gone to the east and to the south. The Netherlands is now, the North Sea is now an external border. The Netherlands is on the Western periphery rather than at the heart of this institution. And that creates a number of anxieties, which in 2017 and 18, I think, drove this discussion of, oh, we need to, we need to find a new coalitions. And now in 2020, I think the mood has calmed down a little bit. And people have started to realize, like, look, we're not talking about leaving the EU. We want to reform it, like Catherine has said. And also there is this sense to kind of go with the flow, to perhaps not consider it that bad that Europe is now principally being led by Germany and France. But it's, it's a part of, of um, realization or, or consolidation rather of the Dutch in the European Union after, uh, after Brexit. So that, I think that geopolitical argument is actually relevant in this, in this context in terms of informing how the Dutch view um, the EU post-Brexit. I, I think I, I think I very much agree with that. So so geopolitics, not, not necessarily my area of expertise, but making this also more political. I don't know if, if it sees it this way, but I think that, that that the fact where the Dutch became more comfortable is also because of the movement of the Conservative Party in Britain and Boris Johnson's choices that I think many people also within the fifth day, so Mark Rutte's party, but also, you know, like let's say centrist Dutch people felt like, well, that's not really our politics, right? So I think that it also removed, of course, of course that's again, we don't know how that's going to develop, mm. right? Uh, but in, in, in that way, I think there was also more of a distance because one saw less, you know, not committing to one's international uh, uh, agreements, maybe also now Biden becoming the president of the United States, where it's perceived as, as that he's not necessarily maybe an ally of Boris Johnson's types politics, right? I think in that way, also the political changes that we saw because of the withdrawal agreement, because of the move from Theresa May to Boris Johnson has also maybe changed a bit that political configuration. It does tell you also that these things change quickly, right? So mm. that that's, uh, that what will happen in the United Kingdom, as I said, that, that I find it very difficult to do any prediction in politics at the moment. 
but to to see how that will develop will be will will be crucial. But but I, I think that that there's also a political element next to that geopolitical element of, uh, that 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 Rem was describing, which is who is in power in Westminster, what are they proposing, how is that viewed, and how I think still centrist is that for us, and and does that reflect that? So. So maybe I don't know, but maybe also the Dutch see an opportunity in the sense of well, you know, we're 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 more Atlanticist. Maybe we can also play a role in in relationships with the United States, or maybe we can also play a role in as a broker between Berlin and Paris, indeed, in the way that that Rem suggests. Uh, that might also change depending on who becomes prime minister in the Netherlands after the election in March. But these political configurations of who is in power with whom, how close is that, I think also play a role. And that might explain a little bit the the the, the kind of move towards maybe, again, more continental Europe as, as that realization sank in, but also in the fact that we maybe don't associate ourselves that much with the kind of Boris Johnson-style conservative party where we, had, where we would traditionally with someone like David Cameron, for example. I mean, that was much closer to someone like Mark Rutte uh, than, than Boris Johnson. You just mentioned there, Catherine, uh, David Cameron. I've heard said that the Dutch uh, Prime Minister Mark Rutte turned down his anti-EU rhetoric as a consequence of seeing what happened to David Cameron. So criticizing the EU one moment, looking to defend the EU's UK membership uh, on the, at the other. Uh, so do you see any truth in that? So I I find it very difficult to say if if like a party like the Faith Day is particularly anti-EU. I, I don't see Margaret Rutte being anti-EU, especially in comparison to the other uh, political parties in the system, I mean, not just on the right, Geert Wilders, but also on the left. Uh, the Socialist Party, uh, our more far-left party, was also quite critical of, uh, of, uh, of, of European integration. I think Margaret Rutte is, a, is an ultimate a person who doesn't want to shake the boat too much. He also wants to just be a good prime minister that does the best things for for the Netherlands. I, I, I believe that he wants to do that. I have some critique about some of his choices of portraying himself sometimes as a good populist, as he sometimes says, right, that he needs to say certain things. But I think he genuinely, um, uh, he's expressed that also, genuinely had concerns about the Greek debt crisis, about the sustainability of the euro, and also about uh, the refugee crisis, especially about the uh, you see that now in the rule of law discussions in the in the Netherlands about the unwillingness of Eastern European member states to to add and to to be part of that European solution, but to to be obstructionist. So, and I think I think uh, actually he's oftentimes someone who wants to play ball. It's just a question on the, which conditions, and and how is that going to be uh, uh, implemented, and things like accountability and other elements, which you know are I think are also valid valid questions to ask. I had had the privilege of, of meeting both of them when they were discussing some of these negotiations at, at Checkers at a certain point. And, and I do think there was a deep respect between the two men. And also there's there in some ways, you know, similar type of parties. Right. So especially the, the Tory party of, uh, of David Cameron. And I think I mean, I don't know. I don't know uh, him, you know, uh, uh, Mark Rutte that, that well personally that 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 I think no one, no prime minister will be happy by 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 David Cameron's record, let's be honest, right? So he is he was he developed and started something that he then couldn't control, right? And actually, many of his own constituencies, so let's say CBI, for example, does not like that either. So it brought also about a lot of changes within the Conservative Party, a coalition that his leadership was supposed to kind of uh, still bring together. So I think from that, any prime minister would learn that you know you're playing with fire at a certain point of how far do you go. 
That's very, very interesting. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, but just moving on to think about the negotiations, um, the Netherlands is one of the countries most affected by Brexit. I just wondered where, where, in which sectors it's most likely to feel the impact and, and has, how, how has this shaped the um, Hague's approach to the negotiations? The Netherlands after Ireland is pro- most likely to be most affected by the impact of Brexit, whether we have a deal which is rather thin, or we have a no-deal situation. So back in 2016, the Dutch, um, sort of the Dutch version of the OBR, did a number of assessments, a number of modeling about uh, what the impact would be on the Dutch economy. And of course, they didn't yet know what type of Brexit we were looking at, but they said on average about 1.2% drop of GDP across the board. Um, now that's all wrapped up in different sectors, of course. But so, And then you fast forward a couple of years and the modeling becomes more sophisticated. And what we see is that we particularly face a, a tremendous loss of competitiveness in the event of a, of a no deal in a number of areas which are primarily concentrated in uh, the Western part of the country. Again, this is quite logical. The economic activity in the Western part of the country is very much exposed also to trade with the United Kingdom. It's just a short boat ride across the North Sea. And what you're then talking about is agri-food sector, so fresh produce. Now, one of the main concerns of the Netherlands has been from the start of the negotiations is these guarantees on level playing field to ensure that if the UK retains market access to the EU, it does so on the basis of a shared set of rules, that there isn't a unleveling of the playing field giving a competitive advantage to the United Kingdom over the Netherlands. Because if the UK were, for instance, to adjust its bonus regulations for professional services and make it slightly more competitive and still retain the same amount of market access, you could see a drought of that activity coming from uh, uh, in Amsterdam and moving to London. And so, and we, I mean, we can talk about, about production standards or, or all sorts of EU regulations um, that have that similar effect. And this is very difficult to quantify, but I would argue that this whole uh, risk of the UK turning into a Singapore on the Thames is very strongly felt in the Netherlands simply because of the comparability of uh, particularly our, our, our services sectors. So, so the Netherlands was very strongly supporting, has been a, a strong supporter of this idea then that, uh, that uh, you know, to the very end, the, the EU must um, achieve a level playing field. And this is something that the UK has to accept if it's to, if it's to get um, zero tariffs, zero... Um, Absolutely. And I think one of the I think one of the, 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 the missing elements, if I look at the UK press coverage of the Brexit negotiations, is that there's this idea that the level playing field is this French idea. The Netherlands, from the start, has been banging its fist on the table about the level playing field. We don't want a hyper-competitive UK tax system that's going to suck up all the investment that's otherwise going into the Netherlands. But that's the reality that uh, a number of Dutch officials and politicians are otherwise worried about. And so absolutely, this whole issue of level playing field is top, top, uh, is top of mind when it comes to the type of conditions that the Netherlands wants the UK to meet in, in return for market access. 
No, and I think that's also crucial. I very much agree with them that this was not really understood. I remember also giving presentations in, in Whitehall that, that, that they thought maybe that because of some of these value and cultural links to the, to the Netherlands, that, 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 that the Dutch wouldn't play that card. And I was always like, well, you know, I know us to be quite pragmatic as a people. So, I mean, that would be the first thing that, that uh, and, and a trading nation. And that, that's very cruel, uh, very, very kind of crucial to our, to our success also, right? I mean, the, the Netherlands in, in terms of a small open economy has, has enormously benefited uh, from, from that enterprise. And, that, and, that, and clearly, I think that you can actually see that if, if you would put, you know, like a, like a bet on it, I actually think that that element is stronger, let's say, in the, in the, in the Dutch debate than, for example, in the German debate, right? And it was all about kind of German car makers and all these kind of things. But, you know, if you think indeed about kind of banking services, a lot of, a lot of other things which are, which are crucial for, quote unquote, the Dutch success in, in the last decades, this is a crucial element. And I, I, I really didn't see it neither with the kind of a lot of officials and the way that they were discussed. And I think the idea was we're going to be treated well by our friends or, or, or this kind of sentiment. I don't, you know, I don't know if that, if that, if that was the idea, but, but yeah, this you didn't hear. And that was the same as, as the focus was then very much on Ireland and the, and the, and the, and the hit on Ireland. And then I remember giving a presentation and said, oh, this is the hit on the Netherlands if this will happen. Right. So it's, it's quite crucial. And, and, and it's only, you know, rational for a country to be worried about, about a continued, you know, uh, leaking out of its own success or having that competitor indeed as, as I'm saying, you know, as Singapore and the Thames, that, that, that doesn't look good for, 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 for kind of the Dutch economy in the long term. Well, I think, I think that's a, that's a re really interesting observation. Rem, did you want to well, add something? Well, we can't talk about Brexit without mentioning fish. And um, one of the, the, the really interesting elements here is um, when we look at the impact of Brexit on the fishing industry, the, the, the Dutch-British relationship is quite important here. To, to give you a couple of examples, 80% of the herring that's um, landed in the Netherlands and that is consumed in the Netherlands comes from British waters. We consider that one of our nationalistic staples. Um, I know that you Brits, you really don't like herring, but you catch it in your waters. And so there's this very obvious sort of trade-off to be made in the, in, the, in the negotiations between on the one hand, being able to fish in UK waters, and on the other hand, also to be able to market it in Europe and bring it to the, UK, to the EU market. On top of that, the Netherlands plays a very important hub, a role as a processing hub for um, fish. So fish from the UK is landed in the Netherlands, is processed here, it's gilled, it's packed, and then it's shipped across the, Euro the, the EU's internal market. Um, just as for centuries, Dutch fishermen have been fishing in UK, in UK waters in their own right. And so I think that's one of the areas, even though it's economically not important, there's a, the, the, the symbiosis between the Dutch and British fishing industries, both catching fish and processing fish is, is I think, a, uh, an, interesting, uh, an interesting dimension to mention. So, so the, the Netherlands must be one of the eight countries that, um, one, that, that is really prioritizing and emphasizing the importance of fish then, that, uh, that uh, imposing constraints on Michel Barnier's room for maneuver. Is that, is that true? <sighs> I think they're definitely part of these eight coastal eight coastal countries meeting with Barnier on a regular basis. However, I think the Dutch are happy to let France lead the way in these discussions. 
I think, yes, there is a realization that um, this is really quite sensitive in uh, concentrated areas. I mean, why is fish so politically combustible? It's because um, even though it's economically quite insignificant in the greater scheme of things, the economic impacts are, are, are concentrated very locally in specific fishing communities. And that's the same in the UK as it is in, in, in the Netherlands. So yes, there's an awareness of the political capital that would be at stake if, if a good fish deal was not achieved. In other words, if the Dutch would be kicked out of UK waters. Um, having said that, I think... Um, the Dutch are happy to sort of bang the drum on level playing field and let the French really fight the fight on, on fish. And so it might be a kind of a, a division of labor in that respect. I think that there's, there's a dynamic there between member states, as, as Rim was outlining on fish, that, that really you know, shows us how difficult these negotiations were from the British side as well. Because you have this block of 27 member states that pick and choose who then gets the blame on particular areas and takes up very well coordinated by, by Barnier and his team. I think that's a, that's a really interesting um, observation because I think that um, in the UK, in the UK imaginary, it's it's France and Germany, with Ireland being especially difficult and and unreasonably so because it's so small. And so you know you you don't really get this sense of of, of the United EU twenty seven, each one with its own sort of interest, and each one are really committed to the to the EU position. And I just and I just wondered if you if you if you were surprised by the emergence of um, unity amongst the EU twenty seven as as many others, particularly observers in the UK, have been. I mean, I, I, I was in some ways. So, I mean, to be fair, we also don't want to give a rosy picture of unity and the EU, right? We're dealing with rule of law negotiations and recovery funds. So, so I mean, there are clear divisions. East-West, uh, very, very kind of um, uh, more superficially, East-West, North-South, right? Um, but on, on Brexit, actually, it will be an interesting kind of thought experiment. You know, what we, be, what we have been in kind of deeper trouble if we wouldn't have had Brexit, right? So it was at least a part where very many member states could agree on and we need to deal with that. And I think one of the reasons for that is coming back to Cleo's question earlier about public opinion. So this is a repeated game. So for a prime minister in the Netherlands, you're going to have an emeritus member state on your shores. So if you think that it's in the Dutch interest to stay in the single market and to stay in some way, you know, however reformed to you that will look like, you need to make sure that you get buy-in of the population. Or if I would be the advisor of the Dutch prime minister or of a different prime minister, I would also say, well, this also is hugely important for future generations of prime ministers and how and what they, the space that they have on the EU, given the fact that still, you know, populist right, populist left parties are quite explicitly mobilizing still anti-EU sentiment. And we have a lot of issues within Europe about, you know, forging integration, how we will move that forward. So it's a very strategic game on many different tables. And it's not just about economics. It's also, and I'm not saying that there is this, so so what it hasn't done, of course, is this fostering, I think, of a, what Germans would say, Schicksalsgemeinschaft and a cultural, no, I think like the Dutch are pretty pragmatic about that. We need Europe, we need to find some way, but we also need to reform it. But I think that that hopefully for myself as, as that the lesson will be learned in the sense that positions on EU reform have to be made clear because some of the opposition of Northern member states and even of Southern member states in different areas, you know, sh you know have some, some uh, affinities with some of the concerns that Britain had. So I think in one element, it, it is, a, is a repeated game, as I said, but it's also made it easier actually for existing member states to try to find a way to reform. Because Britain oftentimes, right, was a, it, it is really untenable to have a big member state not being part of the EMU. That's always been my position. 
wondered if the pragmatism that you were describing and the sort of you know, self-interest that you're describing really extends to Ireland. Was that was that the Irish border ever an issue for the Netherlands? Because you, know, you can see you know solidarity in the single market and and, and other things, but but um, is that worth the, the, the you know the price of keeping the Irish border open? I think the answer is apparently it is because the 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 unity was kept and for for myself i i wasn't really surprised that during the negotiations over the withdrawal agreement that um the unity was kept I mean, it was fairly logical that you had both net payers and net receivers having an interest in the uk solving its financial settlement you had a shared mutual interest in dealing with the issue of uh, european rights or rights um for for european citizens in the uk and vice versa and then there was this question of the Irish border. I don't think that there was a realization in Dutch circles how explosive an issue that was, but I think there was a very early understanding that a number of countries had very specific issues that they wanted to have solved with the UK, whether that was Cyprus and the military bases or Gibraltar and Spain, or the Northern Irish-Irish border. And I think it comes back to this overarching understanding of what the EU is. If anything, the EU is a legal construct able to protect smaller member states from the diktats of larger member states. And so there is this realization that if we start to sacrifice smaller state interests from a very utilitarian perspective for the rest, I think we're on a very slippery slope. And I think that that kind of informed this assessment that, okay, this, this is a real issue for Ireland, which we need to take serious. And also if we don't deal with it, it becomes a potential backdoor that's going to weaken the integrity of the internal market. And those two things together, I would say, made it fairly um, straightforward for the Netherlands to accept that this was one of the totemic issues. And in fact, that Ireland deserved Dutch support. I mean, on a practical level, I also think that two things were quite instrumental. One is, um, I think Ireland's diplomacy on the Irish border has been, you know, a case study in how you do European diplomacy. I think they did a really excellent job in building uh, support for their position. And I think that that's been one of the success stories of Brexit, at least in, in how Ireland has, has increased its voice and its, its credibility as a, as, a, as a very mature European actor inside the EU. Secondly, the task force and Michel Barnier personally, I think, did a really good job in keeping everyone on board. No, I think I think those really really interesting points. I mean, my understanding is that there's there's you know, considerable sort of you know satisfaction um, in, in, in within the institutions about the way this has worked, that the sort of system of governance put in place to manage Brexit, you know, in, in a way it sort of insulates um, Brexit from other other parts of the business, so that it doesn't you know that um, the, the EU can sort of tick along and manage what he has to manage while Brexit is being dealt with, but also um, you know not just the um, not just the sort of the visiting the member states. And in a way that leads to my next question, which is um, about the, the sort of supposed bureaucratic approach that the EU has taken to all of this. And this, this often gets criticised in the UK. You know, the argument is that, that somehow the mutual interests of, of the UK on the one hand and the EU on the other 
haven't been realised. I just wondered what your view um, was. I mean, I, I to be fair, I mean the easy. It's it's difficult for me for for me to to to, to really judge that. It's, it's, it's you know for, as in as in, it's also not necessarily an area that I that I study. But I would say just having also my personal kind of experiences in the UK. I mean, continental Europe is just a whole lot more bureaucratic than than the UK is. I mean, it's 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 in the sense of like how it goes about. You know, if you ask, a, I mean, now I live in Italy, but if you ask a, an Italian or or a German or a French person, maybe the Netherlands is a little bit in between. But you know, to 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 negotiate something that you know. I, it will be a quite bureaucratic negotiation that that seems to kind of be something that I would associate with the European Union. So you can call that bureaucratic or you can basically say these are the sets. And I think that's how Barnier would say it, these are the sets of things that we agreed with. These are the implications of these sets of things when we do it. If we give you X, Y and Z and you want us to kind of, you know, we can't put up half of a border in Ireland. We can't do half access to the single market. So, so there's a lot of positions that I think, you know, the EU would, from the EU side would say, that's not bureaucratic. This is the only way in which we can have that negotiation. Also, because what I think that, that from the UK point of view, especially in the newspapers, um, is not so clear. This is also for the EU a repeated game. They're negotiating with other external members. The EU, the, the Britain is no longer in the, in, in the club, if you will, right? So this is really about external deals with other countries. So then the deal that you set out is going to have implications about other deals. How, you know, so that, that is discussed in the, in the UK for itself, but it's less discussed in, in how that then limits perhaps the EU and the way that the EU can deal with the UK. I mean, Catherine is is entirely right when it comes to the fact that Brexit isn't the only game in town. I mean, the UK or the EU is also negotiating with other countries, but I'd add it's also negotiating with itself. Internally, EU member states are also looking at, as they always do, this balance inside the EU between rights and obligations. And if certain privileges would be given to the UK, for instance, on level playing field, that member states have to meet themselves, um, that starts to impact domestic discussions as well. So you can call it bureaucratic. You could also consider it simply the logic of European cooperation. I mean, the UK makes this argument, we're not just some third country. We're, like Catherine is saying, we're an emeritus member state. Give us this privileged access. No, and it's not because the the Dutch or the Europeans want to be punitive. It's simply because that then starts to unbalance that house of cards that we've created with ourselves. And I think it's also deeply ingrained in the Dutch DNA that... um, Uh, A deal is a deal. An agreement is an agreement. You signed up to it. These are the rights and obligations. Now you stick by it. If you're not a member of the club, you can't have the same privileges that members have. Otherwise, it's unfair. And this normative issue of fairness is, I think, very strongly ingrained in in the Dutch debate about Brexit. So there's no no schadenfreude. There's There's no um, wanting to get the Brits because we, you know, um, we've steamed up the Thames before in the 1700s and we can do it again, but now through trade. Uh, there's none of that. It's, but it also all has to do with ultimately what it means to be an EU member state. But could I take you back to something you said you said earlier? Because um, you, you, I think you had a point about security. Yeah, well, so in a way, this is uh, one of the dogs that didn't bark. Um, because the UK decided itself it didn't want to talk about foreign 
and defense policy in the future, in the talks on the future relationship. But if some of the things we saw during the withdrawal agreement negotiations would have um, uh, continued, I would have been slightly worried. Why? I think that the, the, the European Union did take an overly legalistic approach to certain security elements that were discussed in the context of the withdrawal agreement. I think particularly the way the EU handled the Galileo satellite navigation system really rubbed the UK the wrong way. And I think there was a case to be made to be somewhat less bureaucratic or, or, or legalistic on that. I think it really did signal to the UK that, okay, you know, trade is one thing, but on some a project that has an, a very strong security dimension that is about collective European security, not just that, but is also something that the Brits themselves contributed tremendously to uh, building up, namely the, Gal the Galileo satellite navigation system to be very um, kind of to, to go out of your way and to say like, look, you can't have any access to that whatsoever if you leave the internal market. I, I, I think some of the aggravation that was felt in the UK afterwards could have been avoided if the UK would have taken a, a or if, if the EU would have taken a, a, less, a less forceful, less legalistic approach. Now, I was worried that some of that would transpire during the past 11 months of negotiation as well. Um, when we talk about foreign and security policy cooperation. But here, the UK already said, like, look, we have no interest in reaching an agreement with the EU on this, and so we'll never know. Um, we'll also never know to what extent that for foreign and security policy chapter could have been used to divide and rule the EU 27, because I think it's, it's clear that there are differences of... Um, perspective and different interests among the EU27 when it comes to that future UK-EU foreign policy and security relationship. And so, um, you know, I, I don't think that that story has ended yet. I think we'll see more of, of the talk about this, but at least in the context of these formal negotiations, it's, it's one of the areas of potential conflict that hasn't, that hasn't materialized because it was kept off of the table. Thank you for all that. <laughs> um, how ready is the Netherlands for the end of the UK transition and the possibility of this, uh, well, no deal, the possibility, the growing possibility of a no deal? So the Netherlands has been um, focusing on contingency measures and on preparedness for no deal since, I would think, since early 2018, perhaps even earlier. Um, in First, in the context of the withdrawal agreement, where there was the necessity to increase customs officials um, at the port of Rotterdam, uh, to increase uh, uh, food safety officials who could do the screening of agri-food coming in from the UK. Um, and in terms of a, setting up a broad information campaign to allow com companies to prepare. So what the Dutch government did in 2018 is they gave vouchers. They handed out vouchers to Dutch companies to allow them to assess what their exposure was to a potential form of Brexit. And I think 
that that was that positive incentive. In other words, handing out cash to companies, which they could then use to pay consultants or lawyers or to get extra staff or resource time to, to think through what Brexit means, was a really important trigger to bring companies up to speed. Now, the port of Rotterdam, for instance, as a, as a not just a Dutch logistical node, but a, a, a European-wide logistical choke point when it comes to Brexit, has been thinking about Brexit from the start. And they've set up this whole new logistical uh, information system, which is um, run through a, a, a company that if you show up as a trucker with your goods to transport to the UK at the port of Rotterdam. You'll have had to fill in your forms already. You can access them, the, them digitally. That system has been up and running for the past year now. It's been trialed, it's been tested, it's been simulated. And I would think there is a fair degree of confidence that the Netherlands can withstand the immediate impact of a no deal. Where there are concerns is what I mentioned at the beginning, is that there are a number of companies, these are actually quite a few, um, that the government isn't able to reach in terms of its contingency and preparedness measures. The, the main worries are two things. One is this group of companies, small, medium enterprises that haven't been really able to work through what their impact is or what the impact of Brexit is on them. And secondly, as I mentioned, the port of Rotterdam is not just a Dutch logistical hub, it's a European-wide hub. If you have trucks pulling up from the Czech Republic or Northern Italy or Eastern Germany, and they come to Rotterdam and they haven't filled in the right forms, it's going to create backups in the entire chain. And so the Netherlands actually has this interest to ensure or to hope that all of the EU27 are up to speed about these contingency measures because Rotterdam is not just, is, is, is Europe's gateway to, um, to the UK, not just for the Netherlands. Thank you very much. Um, we started off, I mean, earlier on in the discussion, it was mentioned that both of you mentioned, Catherine and, and Rem, the observation of the British miniseries, political miniseries or soap opera, uh, from the perspective of the Netherlands. And uh, I did want to go back on that. And how, how have the Dutch perceptions of the UK and its politics, its people changed or evolved during the two sets of negotiations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. So I think that that clearly what you saw in some of the some of the polling that we've done. So I'll give you a little bit of an impression on the polling and then maybe some observations myself. So on the polling, you see an increase in Brexit being a bad idea and Brexit being a bad idea for the UK. And I think that's the association of people thinking that, you know, the fallout is larger than they expected. And I think also many people didn't, you know, I think many Dutch people didn't have an idea about the, the Irish border, didn't have an idea about like, you know, uh, uh, customs in a very similar way than, you know, we, we kind of blame the, 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 the UK discussion for that. But I think it's not much better in some ways in, uh, in, in, in kind of Dutch public debate. So it was also, a, a, you know, a large uh, updating exercise of, of seeing what the potential ramifications were. I, I, have, I have the feeling 
I'll give you an example. There was something I had to go to, you know, as a professor, you wear a toga uh, and I had to go in, uh, in uh, one of the canals in Amsterdam to get it fitted. And the person who said, yeah, I love the UK and, then, and what are we doing to the UK? But I also can't understand. This was a normal guy kind of expressing because I told him that I was working on the EU and started talking about Brexit and then started talking about Brexit like, oh, I love the UK and we're losing someone, but I also don't understand what they've, dis- what they've done. And and I think that's a little bit the discussion. So I have the feeling that 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 the majority of Dutch people that are interested in politics, of which there, you know, most people are probably not going to be so super interested in politics. But if they are, I think they do see it as kind of an exercise of collective self-harm. And and the idea that, you know, with such a trading nation, with a nation that's always also saw its work in terms of cooperating in whatever form with other with with other nations, that that it's a loss. And that it's also a loss for the UK. And I, I don't think it's really that, that people view British people or British. I mean, I think there's still people, you know, watching The Great Bake Off. There's still people, you know, watching uh, if there will be a British movie again in the, in, the, in the if we can go to the cinema again, you know, we would go and watch kind of Notting Hill or these kind of things. I mean, that's really hugely popular, as Rem was talking about. So I think those ramifications have not necessarily been the case. But I think it's, it's really a, an idea of loss and also partly of you know, bewilderment of like, what's the UK doing? And, and how will this end? And, and, and how are they going to solve that? So I think, you know, that that's a bit how I see next to, you know, what, what, I, what I see in public opinion, where people do think that there will be, at least in the short term, ne- negative ramifications for the UK. So from a political point of view, or I think the, the Dutch are, are quite sorry to see the UK leave. Um, and they don't entirely understand what's happened to the country. There's this fascination, of course, with what's happening on the other side of the North Sea. And sometimes we view the, the, the Brits as sort of fun, but rather a bit eccentric. And this kind of fits that bill. But on the political side, um, there's, there's a concern how the UK has changed over the past four years. I mean, previously, the UK was a leading voice when it comes to you know, foreign policy. And it was a totem of, of international economic strength, of promoting free trade, of guiding the European Union also to be more outward looking and outward focused and to maintain sort of a rather strategic approach to developments across the world. I mean, if it wasn't for the UK, would the EU really be paying attention to what was happening in sub-Sahara Africa or in the South China Sea? I mean, I have my, I have my doubts. And, and, and so the UK, it wasn't just a country that left the, the, um, the EU. The Netherlands has always been very, very much oriented towards um, Anglo-Saxon thinking about foreign policy, about economic policy. And that's changed in the sense that we see a United Kingdom, which is absorbed with itself, is kind of tussling with itself, trying to develop a new identity, and we're not entirely sure what that identity is going to mean in terms of cooperation on the larger themes. And so we see a slogan like Global Britain and ask ourselves, well, to what extent couldn't Britain be global when it was an EU member state? And to what extent is Global Britain, does it now mean um, anything but the EU? Great. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, I've got a final question uh, for you, which is, how do, how do you see the development of the relationship between the UK and, and the Netherlands after the end of the transition period in the, in the new era that begins on the 1st of January 2021? 20, uh, so 
I think that that from the Dutch side, it will be also interesting to see how it is going to develop from the British side. But from the Dutch side, I think there's a real interest in having a strong relationship. It's a neighboring country. It's a, a country that them uh, just outlines as we share a lot of kind of values with. I, I do think that that uh, even if it was used for domestic consumption, but the focus on, for example, Australia and other countries. I mean, actually, I talked to some people. They, they found it a bit hurtful in the sense like, oh, we're, we're your neighboring country. You know, like, where are we in this? Right. And I am, and, you know, and I think there's a lot of understanding that there needs to be a deal with the EU. But there is in, in, in some ways that, you know, something has changed. So I think the question we very much about. If if the relationship, you know, this will be this is a start of an of an ongoing negotiation between the UK and the EU in some form, of which the Netherlands will be part. So how how cooperative is that going to be? I think it's also going to be crucial to see, you know, what will be the legacy of Boris Johnson in the Conservative Party? How will the Conservative Party change? How will we see, you know, another Labour government? How will that be different? And I think also myself is that I find it very difficult to predict it because my prediction on the UK will be that it will be very focused on itself, very focused on its, on its own territorial integrity. When we think about Scotland, when we think about, you know, the Irish border. Um, and I think that also scares maybe some circles within the Netherlands in the sense that the US is very much focused on itself. And there are lots of, you know, processes within the US, even though Biden won the election. But there's a lot to do to, quote unquote, if he would say, heal the United States and focus on that. And also the UK in some ways seem very preoccupied with itself and its own divisions. Uh, and, and especially also that effective divide between people and leavers, remainers, that has become kind of political identities um, so I, I, I think it will very much depend. I think from the, from, from the, from the Dutch side, there is a very strong feeling that, that you know, uh, the links have been strong historically. They were strong in the, in, in the time that we were both part of the EU. They should be strong uh, when one of us decides to leave the EU. But I think, it will, you know, it, the, the, the big question is, will we reciprocate it to the same extent uh, from the United Kingdom? Because the Netherlands, of course, within the EU plays a big role, but on itself, is it, you know, it's a country of 16 million people. It's not the biggest country in the world, right? So, so in, in that way, how it will develop will be, I think, very much depend on how the United Kingdom decides to have a relationship with the Netherlands. But I think the willingness from the Dutch side is as long as, you know, uh, uh, there is respect for our position within the EU and the EU's negotiation position, you know, we are very interested in having strong ties. I, I agree with what Catherine said. I think regardless of whether we have a deal or no deal, ties will remain strong. But the quality of those ties will, of course, be different depending on whether we have a deal or no deal. I mean, the difference between deal and no deal is not massive in terms of the trade implications, but it's whether we have a foundation on which we can rebuild a new relationship or whether we're going to go through a very acrimonious period where there's going to be recriminations from both sides that's going to make building also a bilateral relationship much more difficult. That to me is the real value of having a deal, how thin that may be. I think to Catherine's point, and that's then then that's my final comment, is that um we need to look at the UK-EU relationship and also, by extension, the UK-Netherlands relationship as something that's going to remain in flux. It's going to develop over time. Brexit at the end of this year is not going to be the end of the conversation between the UK and the EU. I mean, particularly not if we end up in the no deal, but also if we end up in a deal situation. Politics change, governments change. I think there is. we need to see this in some respects as a... Um, a cathartic moment 
where the UK is going through what you could consider a pretty big identity crisis. It's trying to reorient itself. We need to give the UK time to go through that and help it where we can. And then at some point, hopefully, we can have a very constructive relationship. You know, the EU will have evolved since then. The Dutch position in the EU will have evolved since then. But there is no substitute for having very close bilateral relations simply because the map is what it is. And the UK is not a group of islands off in the middle of the Atlantic. It's it's a, a land a landmass just off of the coast of The Hague. Well, thank you both so much. It's been a, it's been a great discussion and we've learned a, a tremendous amount. Thank you for listening to us. Thanks to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Negotiating Brexit, Views from the Member States.